Welcome to Silicon Valley Trends, a free podcast series published by Silicon Valley Business School. I'm your host, David Smith. At Silicon Valley Business School, we provide affordable, real-world, online business education to everyone, everywhere, and guide entrepreneurs towards success with their startup ventures. In this episode, I'm interviewing Paul Kalbers at The Vault, a co-working facility in downtown San Francisco. As you'll hear, Paul has a lot of experience of patent and technology licensing, and he travels all over the world running programs for entrepreneurs and teaching angel investors about how to invest in startups. Okay, well, David, thanks for being here. My name is Paul Kalmus. I'm the general manager here at The Vault. We are a co-working innovation, education, and event space in the heart of historic Jackson Square. We're one block from the Transamerica Pyramid, so we're easy to find. The building itself dates from 1854. It started life as the first Ghirardelli chocolate factory in San Francisco. In fact, the basement where we are was the factory. Retail was on the first floor and the family lived on the second floor. So it was a true vertical business. And the waterfront was on Sansom, by the way, to give an idea of what's changed here in San Francisco. Really? Yep. Well, I wasn't here then, but it, that's what they tell me. Really? Wow. Yep. Uh, the vault has been here for five years. We just signed a second five-year lease. We'll so be here another five. Uh, we have companies from all over the world, and we have huge volumes of people from all over the world coming through here. As most folks know, everybody wants a bit of whatever makes Silicon Valley and San Francisco what they are, so they come here looking for it, and it's our job at the vault to try to provide it as best we can. Some things can be taught and conveyed, others can't, but we try to give everybody a flavor of what goes on here. In my role as GM, I run the place and try to keep order among the 120 or so clients we have here right now. I also run several programs. I have a startup boot camp that's called The Things That Matter Most, which is not a typical boot camp as in, here's how you sell more of what you already sell or offer as a service, or do it in these markets or on better margins, whatever. Those things are important, absolutely. My course is more about really understanding the nature of what you're up to. Are you a good business in addition to being a good startup? Because you may be the best technology and technologist in the world, but without a good business practice and infrastructure around you, you're not going very far. Mm -hmm. uh, so we try to get people to understand the full spectrum of things they have to do. Startups have plenty to worry about. So in mm -hmm. effect, I give them more things to worry about, but they're all essential. Things like IP and HR and bookkeeping, mm -hmm. which might be not very startup sexy, but without mm -hmm. them, you're going to be in trouble. Absolutely. We also run a program called the Angel Accelerator, which is uh, based on our belief that there are not enough angel investors in this world. Angels are critical to the survival and the growth of early stage ventures before the later stage funders like venture and private equity can step in. Uh, most angel investors are ne not necessarily that great at it. They've never been educated. and Therefore, there's no reason to think they would be good because it's a skill like anything else. Uh, so we have some reasonably sophisticated programs that teach people how to look at what matters the most about a startup and do their best to judge as much as you can at an early stage in a company's life what their prospects are and how deeply you should be involved. Mm -hmm. We also run accelerators here. We have companies, we had a big group of Korean companies here last autumn. We had a group of Canadian companies. We pitched to about one to two governments a month, um, sending delegations of companies over here because again, everybody wants a piece of it and spending one to four weeks here is a great way to experience at least the basics of life in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. in San Francisco. And finally, uh, I run these uh, international tech summits, which is a two or three day gathering in some foreign city. Last year I was in The Hague in the Netherlands and Gothenburg in Sweden. 
and it brings together entrepreneurs, startups, angel investors, venture investors, corporates, academics, the mayor, municipal folks, government folks, try to get them all together and take a look at what's, what's a realistic ambition for whatever area you're in and what's it going to take to reach you know, goals that, mm -hmm. that indicate real progress because right. that's the key to economic growth in a lot of ways. And we mm -hmm. work everywhere from the more developed economies in Finland and Norway to countries in Africa, South America. Mm -hmm. It's our belief that anybody anywhere deserves a shot at making it in, in the tech space or the business space. And if we can help them do it and they're willing to listen and learn, then we have a good match. Mm -hmm. So, so um, we're sitting down um, in the, the, the basement here. It's a beautiful building, red brick building. We're in a, a um, actually recording studio. You have, um, there are, um, what do you say, 70, how many start companies are? Right uh, now it's about based? 45 companies, right. about 120 people. Right. We have a lot of turnover. Right. This co-working, which is one of the element of our business, is a very competitive business here in San Francisco. Yeah. There are roughly 110 co-working spaces in San Francisco That's alone. just amazing. It's just exploded. And in the five years since the vault's been around, things have changed dramatically, mostly because of WeWork. Right. I mean, it's good in that it brings attention to co-working, yeah. but it also makes it hard for anyone to stand out if you're not already a big guy like yeah. WeWork and Regis and things like that. Right. But the vault here has all these programs and you have these training courses and uh, things going for entrepreneurs. That we work, yeah, exactly. We work hard to differentiate ourselves. Most co-working spaces offer a desk, mm -hmm. maybe a kiosk with some food and drink in it, mm -hmm. and usually not a lot else. Mm -hmm. Here at the vault, we have, in addition to all these programs, we're an open workspace that encourages communication, serendipity. We also have a very deep uh, infrastructure of expertise in the the on-site team, and we're available to startups that need the help. I'm an IP guy. Uh, I do mm -hmm. a lot of fundraising and pitch presentation coaching. Mm -hmm. So if companies need help with that, just come ask us. It's not something generally available at most co-working mm -hmm. spaces. We think it's a significant differentiator. We also do a lot of advising to similar businesses overseas. Mm -hmm. I can list a dozen countries off the top of my head that we work in mm -hmm. right now providing mm -hmm. such advice, and it's good because we, we adapt it and adopt it to what makes sense in their location, not saying, well, here's how it works in San Francisco. Therefore, you got to make it work the same way there. Mm -hmm. That's completely unrealistic. Mm -hmm. um, and what's the business model that um, the vault? Do you take any equity in these companies, or is it purely we don't? Rent? We don't take equity in companies that are here as month-to-month -month clients. We do take equity in companies that go through our accelerator programs. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have a fund in-house, so we're not like 500 startups or Y Combinator. Mm -hmm. um, but we're also not a programmatic shop. We don't say welcome to a certain number of startups and say, here's a program we can offer you. Everyone gets the same material. Take it and good luck. You mm -hmm. know, anything we do, we do on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. All right. And then um, these relationships you have with these other um, incubators, would you say it's an incubator or co is it a co-working facility here? Well, I mean, the boundary's a little blurred there. Right. I think we're primarily yeah. a co-working space. Right. Incubation implies that we help them grow and we really help them focus. Yeah. That's the accelerator programs we run would fit that definition more closely. Okay. But there's at least three companies in-house that I help on a regular basis. Right. So in a sense, there's an incubation uh, capability being deployed there. Right, right. Not a hard and fast definition of what, what that kind of engagement means. Yeah, and do you, and uh, San Francisco seems to be where everyone's heading these days. People are moving from Silicon Valley up to San Francisco. Um, What's going on? Why, why is this happening? Because you would think you know, Silicon Valley was the center of all the startup world and, and uh, high-tech companies and everything was centered there and people were living in San Francisco and 
commuting that to Silicon Valley, which is about an hour, half an hour to an hour. It used to be a half hour to an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I live in Oakland. If I need to go to Palo Alto, yeah. if I leave at 6 a.m., it takes an hour and a half. If I leave at 7 a.m., I'm not going to get there. Wow. So traffic, simply put, traffic is too bad to do those kind of commutes. Right. But I also think it's fair to say that cities in the peninsula, they're nice. They're a lot quieter than uh, life in San Francisco. And I think yeah. as the tech population has skewed younger, and there's a lot of those younger folks have a lot of money, they want to live in a place like San Francisco uh, that offer all the amenities uh, without having to go too far to get them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a big fan of Palo Alto and Woodside, but, yeah. but that's a different kind of demographic that, that used to be there that yeah. no longer maybe the dominant force in the tech workforce. Right. And as people have the money to be able to afford San Francisco, which as we all know is insanely expensive, that's yeah. just shifted everything generally northward. There's lots of data about the yeah. amount of venture money coming through San Francisco and what's changed. I mean, there's no doubt Silicon Valley is still a, the, the major part of the ecosystem, but the perception is that a lot of the, the power has shifted north. Nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that. Right. I mean, if anything, if it takes pressure off some of the, yeah. the cities and the 101 and the 280, it's not a bad thing. Right, right. It's just general growth. I mean, the, I hear that the v venture investors are moving up here as well from Sand Hill Road. I think we have uh, six yeah. or eight on Jackson Street alone. I mean, their mm -hmm. names I generally don't know. It's yeah. not like uh, the big names are here necessarily. They'll be probably on Market Street or, right. or over in that part of town. But uh, safe to say, everybody wants a piece of San Francisco. Yeah. And they're, they want to be where the action is. And yeah. who could possibly blame them? Right. We think it makes sense to uh, have a, a foothold here, but not necessarily. Like the, a lot of foreign companies come here and mm -hmm. say, we want to move to San Francisco. We're like, do mm -hmm. not do that. Mm -hmm. You know, send over a CEO, maybe send the CEO or COO for a bit. Mm -hmm. Get a sense of how things work. What's, what's a realistic ambition for your company? Mm -hmm. And then put a sales or a business development team here and take small steps right. after you've got a solid, a solid enough foundation at home to support an outreach effort over here. Do not pick up and move wholesale. You'll probably regret it pretty, pretty badly and pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I have seen and had, I've worked with people that have worked in this space where they've been bringing companies over from overseas mm -hmm. and they used to just show up in San Francisco and uh, in Silicon Valley and think that business was going to be done in the same way it is in Finland or Norway or Sweden or wherever. And then they find out, oops, it's totally different. It's here. totally different. One thing I really like about the vault is we get an extraordinary variety of people and companies through here. Mm -hmm. I mean, I keep meaning to get a world map and put a pin up in every country that's visited from here. It's almost every one. Mm -hmm. I had 24 countries from Central and South America here back in November, and it was awesome because, you know, Paraguay, there's a very small capital market there. And right. There's a small tech scene. They have ambition. They're just below mm -hmm. Brazil, of course, so they yeah. have access to the resources in Brazil. But they come here, and it's it's somewhat bewildering because it's just so different. Mm -hmm. Not just that it, things work differently, but how do you figure out, how do you tell a story to somebody here that makes sense based mm -hmm. on what you have back home? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we can do is, as I say, we're going to write you a reality check, and I want you to cash it, mm -hmm. at least for those of us who know what checks are. <laughs> I think some of the younger generation may not know, or they won't know in a little while. Right. And so it's really it's good work on our part to help straighten out people's ambitions because a lot of folks to this day mm -hmm. come here and say, we want to raise money from an American venture firm mm -hmm. in the next yeah. two months and then take it home and grow like crazy there. Yeah. And then we say that's probably not, not likely to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, my experience was dealing with the venture investors here. They want to have the board meetings here in Silicon Valley. And the company, they want the company to be positioned as a Silicon Valley company. And they want to, uh, but the R&D can be offshore. So um, my friend's company actually IPO'd. They did all their development in Ireland, they were an Irish company. 
They came here, he came here on his own, set up um, initially a sales operation, and they raised venture capital here in Silicon Valley, positioned this as a Silicon Valley company, IPO'd, and everything worked great. Where did they go public? Which exchange? On the NASDAQ. On the NASDAQ? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there are, the thing is, the venture investors, if you're going to move into Silicon Valley the, uh, uh, or in San Francisco, venture investors are going to want to have the company set up in the way that they're familiar with. They want a U.S. Delaware corporation. They want all the IP moving over here, and they want to have their board meetings here. Uh, but some of the R&D stuff can take place overseas. Is, do, do you see that happening? Absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, we get a lot of, we don't get as many investors through here as I'd like. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons we started the Angel Accelerator program, to try to draw more people, at, at least at the early stage, to yeah. come through here because we see so many companies. Yeah. I mean, I bet this week, I'm just trying to think, this week, it's Thursday afternoon, I've uh, probably seen, seen or said hello to 40 to 50 startups this week. Just here at the vault. It's crazy. And what are they doing? They're, they... They're part of delegations from overseas that okay. are coming here to figure out how things could work. A lot, it's a lot of university stuff, a lot of government, um, occasionally mm -hmm. big corporations. We had a large Dutch telecom, 40 people from mm -hmm. one company, the big mm -hmm. Dutch telecom, KPN. Right. We're here last year looking at startups and talking about how things work. Mm -hmm. So kind of the full gamut. Um, mm -hmm. And again, we try to provide reality checks uh, for each and every company or person who comes mm -hmm. through here, and try mm -hmm. to give them a sense for what they should be what they should be looking for, as mm -hmm. opposed to what they've heard goes on here, and they think right. it will apply to them. So, so if someone's listening to this, and they're overseas and they're heading to San Francisco. Can they just come and knock on the door, or do they should they? I suggest uh, doing an email introduction first. But sure, yeah. you can come knock on the yeah. door. We're open. Uh, we're open twenty four seven. Although, right. I wouldn't show up at midnight. <laughs> I think the, the thing about the vault is that we, we have a very useful function to fulfill to the markets, which is not only to bring some of the Silicon Valley, San Francisco mojo to other parts of the world mm -hmm. and help people figure out what works for them, but that we can be very useful when they're planning to come here because they all want to come here. We encourage mm -hmm. that. Yeah. But come for a week. Come for two weeks. Mm -hmm. and, and don't just come and do a tour, like to just mm -hmm. drive by the Facebook campus. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do much when it comes right. to figuring out how does innovation work. Mm -hmm. what are, what's realistic for me and my company in these markets? Mm -hmm. You've got to come here and visit with people who are either in your space or who offer the kind of services you need, mm -hmm. or whether it's a co-working space, a consultant, mm -hmm. a strategic partner, a potential customer. Maybe you're ready for venture money, and the venture guys will be very clear about how they, how they do things. Mm -hmm. And what you just said a minute ago about incorporating over here and having a small team, proximity mm -hmm. to the investors, they'll probably say the same thing. And, mm -hmm. and then, then at least you have a sense of what you need to do to make yeah make an engagement with the venture mm -hmm. more likely. Right. So, but it's, there's no, having said all that, there's no one size fits all for any one company. Mm -hmm. And what works for one company may not work for another. Right. What we always say in general is get solid at home, mm -hmm. get some traction, mm -hmm. get, have a war chest put aside, understand mm -hmm. the risks you're taking, be willing to lose every penny mm -hmm. if you want to set up over here. But at the yeah. very least, you'll learn something. So it's not mm -hmm. an a total loss as long mm -hmm. as you learn something. Mm -hmm. What we tell people, more importantly, is that if you can figure out a way to succeed here, you will go back home and probably be pretty competitive in your own markets. Right. Because the things you learn here are generally not practical, but like the networking, the self-promotion, mm -hmm. the aggression, the impatience, mm -hmm. I've heard it called, right. uh, can, can play well. It can also be a bit of a culture shock, mm -hmm. but the world's moving faster and faster. So yeah. people need to adapt. One thing about the, the, this area and the US and Silicon Valley is that it's so competitive and so specialized that you really have to find a really small niche and fill that niche. Whereas in other countries, it's very different. I remember we, um, 
were working with a, a few years ago a company that was out of uh, Scandinavia, and they had some kind of device. It was kind of like a tablet, you know, like a modern tablet. And uh, they they were selling these things, manufacturing them in Scandinavia, and selling them in Scandinavia. They came to the U.S. and they found that it's totally different. Like they couldn't manufacture them here and sell them here. They couldn't compete with the big, you know, electronics companies and the uh, PC companies and things like that. So they had to reinvent the company when they got to the U.S. and say, what is our core speciality? And they found they had some software that was their core niche. And that was what they had to focus on when they got to the U.S. because it was a totally different market. Whereas over there, there was, it was different. In the Scandinavia, they could sell a, an electronics product. Here, they were developing, they found themselves developing a very small kind of part of the system. Um, so you know, sometimes moving to a big, a big market like this, you have to reinvent the company. Mm -hmm. for that, for it's that. a good reality check because the market's usually right. pretty clear what they like and what they don't like. Right. So yeah, yeah. <clears throat> as long as your eyes, eyes and ears are open, you stand to learn a lot. Right. And again, as long as you learn something, it shouldn't be a total loss even if you lose all your money. Right. Yeah. Okay, but um, you mentioned IP. You have a background in um, in IP, right? And I do, do help these guys. I know it's yeah. something we have in common. Yeah. Yeah. So we met. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, how did you get into the IP business? Well, that was really totally by accident. I was running a family business back on the East Coast, back in the 90s, and uh, I realized that uh, the company had developed kind of an index for characterizing the way paper is formed, and that everybody seemed to know it. It's because my father had done a great job selling these machines for the 20, 25 years or so he ran the company. And I realized that it had become a de facto industry standard. This is your family company? Yeah, yeah my family oh, okay. back right. in Massachusetts. And, and I realized that there was some real value in that. And people mm -hmm. had copied it. People had derived similar indices. I'd say we were the first. I don't know for certain that we were the first. Mm -hmm. Most of it happened when I was still too young to know better. But, but it made me realize that there's great value in what you know as well as in what you make or what you offer as a service. So um, in early 2000, I got a job at a company called Yet2.com was a very interesting company back in Cambridge, Mass. And as the name implies, you know, things yet to come. And it was a group trying to build a marketplace, an open marketplace for IP. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a real eye-opener. Mm -hmm. Not just in how hard it is to build a marketplace, yeah. even when you're well-funded, but how little people really understand IP. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just patents, and carpets, and trademarks. The whole mm -hmm. spectrum of IP, of course, there's yeah. all sorts of different forms of IP. So I realized that this was a, a pretty interesting field and it was not very crowded. So I made an effort, I educated myself, had a variety of jobs and managed some portfolios and have spent, well, since 1997, I did my first license, spent the last 22 years working with individuals, investors, inventors, companies, large and small, young and old. And it's been a phenomenal education. And I think the best way to sum up IP is that if you can have an IP-based business model of some sort, meaning if you can license your IP to somebody or get them to pay you for access to it, that there are a few better ways to earn money. The best way to earn money, David, is to let somebody else earn it and send you a check every quarter. Yeah. That's the best way to do it. Right. And the margins on, in, on revenue like that are about as high as you can ever expect to have. Right? Yeah. Because once you amortize the cost of developing the IP and factoring in the maintenance costs, and maybe some ongoing R&D, you can enjoy tremendously profitable revenue yeah. uh, from that kind of asset base. 
And you know, patents have a life of 20 years from the filing date, so as long as you're continuing to grow the portfolio, it can be, mm -hmm. I won't say infinite, but it can be a very long-lived asset that can create yeah. great cash flow with phenomenal margins. And yeah. what's a better business than that? I know IBM produces huge uh, revenues from their IP licensing. Um, they are the gold. They've been the gold standard for yeah. a long time. But you look at, I know the guys at um, at Via Licensing. Mm -hmm. Joel will be here. Right. Phenomenal yeah. work they do. Right. And the, um, the the things they can make happen with. I mean, granted, that's a pretty special IP portfolio. But yeah. they're also aggressive in acquiring new IP, so they're right. not sitting back and resting on their laurels. Right. And that's the th that's why I tell you know to bring it back to what we do here at the Vault. I meet a lot of companies coming out of university. And most universities are pretty good at IP, creating it, mm -hmm. occasionally protecting it, but they're generally not that great at deploying it mm -hmm. and managing it properly. Mm -hmm. And so I really enjoyed the opportunity to say to companies for which IP is actually important, that here's, here's the IP kind of IP story you need to tell. Mm -hmm. I mean, your IP story could be, we're not gonna do anything, we're gonna, if the phone rings and we get sued, we'll take a license. It's absolutely fine if that works mm -hmm. for you, mm -hmm. as long as you can defend it, because mm -hmm. um, I've seen it happen. Mm -hmm. And I think, if you have an IP component to your business, if there's a way to, to make it perform as a standalone asset, like to license it, or at least cross-license it to, to gain access to something else at a reduced or, or zero fee, it's providing tremendous value. And mm -hmm. most folks just don't know this, and a lot else to worry about, that's for sure. But I really think there could be mm -hmm. a lot more awareness of what IP is and how valuable it can be when mm -hmm. it's treated properly. Mm -hmm. As a strategic asset, it's, it's the orphan child of strategic asset. Mm -hmm. And the, the IP world has changed, though, since you started doing this in 97. Mm -hmm. uh, and because today you go out and ask someone to buy a license, they are They think you're a non-practicing entity, or no, whatever they call them. Yeah, <laughs> patent troll, right? Patent troll, yep. And they will, uh, they'll sue you, and they will go after you, and they'll yep. have an army of lawyers. Um, but it wasn't always like that. I mean, was, what have you seen the difference? I mean, one thing I see is that there are some big companies. You need an army of lawyers and a war chest of funds if you're going to go out and assert your IP and license it, right? So Qualcomm can do it, and IBM can do it, and Via Licensing, these guys can do it. They, but the small guy, the small entrepreneur who develops one patent, um, it's tough. I, I will talk about that in more detail, mm -hmm. but what, tell me about your first experiences, because you used to go out selling licenses, and it was quite an effective business model, wasn't it? It was. I mean, the first portfolio I managed, um, was at a high-tech research lab here in California, and they had had some great successes, um, and they finally decided to monetize it more aggressively. A lot of this stuff was very early stage, and the earlier stage technology is in and the patents that cover it, um, the harder it is to license, because if, if you haven't demonstrated commercial viability, folks would be like, well, I'll take a risk on it, but I'm not paying anything until I not only monetize, but make back all the money I invested in the first place. So mm -hmm. you're looking at it could be a, a, long, a long wait for any kind of meaningful return. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The first successful portfolio I managed was in the LED lighting industry, and that was great because the company was quite successful, and the portfolio was quite large, but they had developed a reputation of using it more as a hammer than as, as a stick than a carrot. Mm -hmm. And I came along with no, no background in this industry and went to people, and when they heard where I was calling from, they weren't that happy. But I said, mm -hmm. look, I'm, I'm new to the industry. Consider me neutral at the mm -hmm. moment. I represent the interest of the company, but it's in everyone's interest to settle this. And I... It, was fairly successful at it. It was great mm -hmm. because once people realize you're not just out for blood, you're out there for a fair deal. And mm -hmm. the benefits of taking a license from a, to a large portfolio can be quite substantial. Mm -hmm. And that when, when you look at the, the, the big picture of what's involved, 
to say nothing of the fear of not getting sued anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it's, pretty, it's pretty good value mm -hmm. as long as the royalty rates are reasonable and the right. other terms and conditions. So I think people just don't know how these things work. Therefore, yeah. fear and, and maybe denial is the first reaction, understandably. Right. So I think it's the licensing person's role to put people at ease or at least to, to calm their greatest fears about this and say that, sure, at the end of the day, if you don't cooperate, we're going to go to court. But you don't, it doesn't yeah. have to go that way. Right. Nobody really wants to get sued or even be suing people unless that's your business model, which, of course, right. is out there as well. So right. I found that you can really turn people around and show them the value and mm -hmm. even say to them, you've got IP, do something with it. Yeah. I once got a client that way. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was great. And, and I think any kind of transaction that involves unfamiliar topics should be a learning. There's a learning curve for both sides. Mm -hmm. One side, how to bring the other guy up to speed. The other guy say, hey, this looks good. Maybe I can do this myself. Mm -hmm. And, and I've, had, I've seen that happen enough times. Right. So, uh, and that was all back in the mid-aughts and in the intervening decade or so. Mm -hmm. I've, I've had a lot of experience with a lot of companies, mm -hmm. um, some of whom are, are quite well aware of what they've got. They just don't have either the reach or the experience to go out and, and position in the marketplace as an attractive asset. Right. I love that sort of thing. Yeah. And I usually get to work with sort of the C-level folks right. uh, because these are strategic decisions and the C-suite should be involved in this. Let yeah. people you know, below that level take care of all this, but it's good to integrate the whole company. In there. Yeah. Um, it's How many patents were you licensing out? Because if someone just has a couple of patents, it's very difficult. Okay. These were, these were fairly substantial portfolios. But right. I've worked with companies here. I, let me think of a good example. <clears throat> uh, I know a Dutch company that does uh, 3D printing with metal. It's super cool. I mean, these, these mm -hmm. are some smart people, and they've got a great portfolio. Just one little hole in it, and their biggest rival has filled that hole with a patent. Mm -hmm. like, now what do we do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I spoke to them a little while ago. I, it's not not an active conversation, so they'll figure something out because they're they're mm -hmm. smart folks. Um, right. But but you see this, they really got to solve this problem, and they've got the yeah. portfolio to do it. But they you know they're sort of at loggerheads with this other guy about what are yeah. the terms? Is there a balance of payments right. for a cross license there or what? Yeah. Uh, so it's situations like that where. There's no problem too complex for a, a well-written license to solve. It might feel impossible. I have certainly been in situations where solution is just not in sight. But right. if, you, if you work at it, yeah. you, the longer time you spend, the better it can go. Yeah, I think there's, um, the, the patent market is a little bit of confusion sometimes because there are uh, different types of products. Some products, like a paperclip, there may just be one or two patented inventions in that paperclip. Um, but there are other products like the smartphone, right. where there's 400,000 patented inventions in that smartphone. So you cannot sell one of these patent-packed products without infringing thousands of patents. Or pay a royalty to every patent, every IP owner in that phone. You're absolutely right. It's right. impossible. So you have to be able to have these cross-licensing arrangements, and there are organizations that do that and people that, that do that. But it's something that it has to be, you know, you can't build a product in virtually any industry today without infringing someone else's patent, so you should be paying license fees to the patent holders. Strictly speaking, yes. Yes, people don't like to do <laughs> and that. A lot, and a lot of folks have a, you know, an avoidance approach. Let's just do it. If we get caught, we'll pay up. But oh, we're, yeah. we're hoping no, we're too small for anybody to notice. Right. So right, right. again, some of that, it makes perfect sense yeah. uh, in some cases, but a lot of it stems from people don't understand really how it works mm -hmm. and they don't right. take appropriate preemptive measures. Yeah. And that's kind of, uh, that's too bad because a lot of time and energy are wasted trying to solve problems that are more complex than they should be if you dealt with it earlier. Right. I think, again, it goes back to a general lack of knowledge about 
IP and how it really works as an asset, yeah. and how you can deploy it, and what to do if somebody comes after you. Right. I think this should be a standard course in any MBA program, certainly. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and I know even yeah. in law school, you know, people who go into the IP track, I wonder what they, what kind of business courses are they given? You know, mm -hmm. negotiation, licensing, and and mm -hmm. um, remediation of things through mutually beneficial deployment of the IP, as opposed right. to pay me a license or I'm going to shut you down. Yeah. Yeah, I once did some seminars. I was in Europe, and uh, you know, each year the top-ranked business schools in the world kind of change. One year it'll be Stanford, and then Harvard, and then sure. it'll be somebody else. And this year it, it was a, a business school in uh, in Barcelona, and I went and visited them and did some talks and things. And they had zero. They did absolutely nothing in IP. Mm -hmm. They have people coming out of their MBA program in the top business school in the world for that particular year. And they had absolutely no understanding of patents and intellectual property. It was just shocking. There were other things. They didn't know how to form a company and, and uh, handle bankruptcy and all those types of things that you'd learn in law school. But I was surprised that these entrepreneurs were not being taught some of the basics of doing business in the modern world. They should have put you on staff. Yeah. To all those problems. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, right. life is complicated. Um, right. Startups are complicated enough without the, knowing the nuances of, right. of IP law or yeah. the smallest term in a license. But right. you've got to be exposed to it at least at, at a high level right. to understand what your options might be should they be required. Yeah. And I just think that doesn't happen nearly often enough. Right. So, on the other hand, so, I do get people through here who have two or three patents behind them. Yeah. Uh, and I say, well, if you're trying to raise money, a patent is, effect, is in effect collateral. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's it's a durable asset as long as you pay your maintenance fees, mm -hmm. and if the claims are any good, mm -hmm. then it may be the last asset standing. So at least mm -hmm. the investors would have something to try to sell off mm -hmm. and get a bit of their money back. Right. Now it's not a very cheery outlook, but mm -hmm. the reality is most startups yeah. will not make it. I mean, yeah, you hear that ninety percent fail in the first year. I think it's more like fifty percent fail over a five-year average. That's still a pretty high failure rate. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, if half of new companies succeed somehow, which means still in business get acquired, manage to grow, whatever your metric for success is, mm -hmm. well, one in two isn't bad, seems mm -hmm. to me, given mm -hmm. how hard it is to get anything to market. Mm -hmm. you know? I tell all the startups to come through here, if you can somehow manage to convince somebody to pay for something you've brought to market, that in itself is a victory. You might have, mm -hmm. lot, you, you might have spent 250 to make it and sold it for 10, but still, you got somebody right. to buy it. Now, that's right. not very sustainable. Presumably, you have a path to reverse those numbers, that ratio, yeah. but yeah. still. It's, it's, it's remarkably difficult, and you should be yeah. correspondingly proud to yeah. have actually thought something up, developed right. it, and brought it to market, and got someone to pay you for it. Yeah. That is not, that is not a trivial feat. Right, right, right. What are the most um, common needs that people have when they come here? What, are they looking to raise finance? They need help business planning? They need help building a product? What, what are the... Boy. Well, honestly, everyone comes here looking for or thinking they need to look for money. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies don't need to look for money, or at least not the way they think. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks are attracted. We, need, we want a, an American venture firm, and that's all we want. Mm -hmm. And for some, it might be appropriate. For others, it's wildly inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So we try to provide a reality check there. Um, we do a lot of talk about from whom should you raise money. You know, angels, you know, government grants. In this country, there's not, not that much. You know, SBR and stuff like yeah. that. But overseas, you know, mm -hmm. Finland, Norway. The Netherlands, they do a great job. Mm -hmm. Government's doing what government should do, yeah. which is taking really early risk mm -hmm. and providing you know, quarter million, half million dollars, euros. Mm -hmm. Take your pick. <clears throat> and I think, <coughs> excuse me, if we had that something like that here, I think you'd have a mm -hmm. higher yield of better companies because mm -hmm. you can only bootstrap for so long. 
Mm -hmm. There's only so much weight your credit cards can bear right. before you and your credit rating crack. Yeah. And, and I think uh, people haven't really thought through you know, the details of their needs. Mm -hmm. In my seminar, so to answer your question, which is, is a much more complicated answer than we have time for, mm -hmm. people come here looking for lots of things. If we can mm -hmm. help them figure out what, what's a rough prioritization of their needs at the moment, and it will be different for every company, we'll have done a good thing. Mm -hmm. Finding you know, money to run on a course is, is a big one. How mm -hmm. do you raise it? From whom do you raise it? And under what terms? Mm -hmm. you know, everybody assumes convertible note. We get small companies doing equity raises, uh, the occasional uh, revenue share, even occasionally uh, just going the straight debt route, which if you can, if you can support that mm -hmm. when the notes come due, more power to you. Mm -hmm. So. We talk to people about the, what their options are. Mm -hmm. We may not change their minds, but at least they know they have other options if, they, if the mm -hmm. first thing doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. um, usually there's some shortcomings in really showing the, the value, the benefits to whatever it is they're trying to bring to market. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that, at least around here, there's so much to choose from that mm -hmm. you got to be quick and to the point about mm -hmm. the, the benefits and the value. <laughs> what I tell people is oftentimes, you know, it's a bit cliche to say it this way, but at a pitch event, for example, it's, a, it's like a beauty pageant. Mm -hmm. One of the things investors look for in every company is a reason not to invest. Mm -hmm. Any kind of flaw that mm -hmm. could affect that company's chances, at least around here, people can say, well, forget, I, I've got three more I can choose from that are similar enough for my taste, mm -hmm. and you're out. So don't be caught out by having that kind of flaw that an investor would look at and say, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense for me to do it that way. Mm -hmm. um, to, to, to promote the course that, that we teach here, it's designed to, to say, what are you good at? What are you not so good at? What do you, you don't even know what you need to do, but you know it's there, right? And you get, we develop a benchmark for a company, all the different categories of things you need to know about, a lot of things that in the Silicon Valley Business School as well, of course. Mm -hmm. And it, if nothing else, at least you can say to an investor, we've had a thorough grilling in all the things that matter in a startup. We're good at these, we're not so good at these. We don't even know what these are, but we're going to go after them when the time comes. You know, that's mm -hmm. at least you've de-risked yourself somewhat by saying we have a much clearer sense of our priorities, our needs, and the path to solutions. Mm -hmm. And so, so the answer to your question is, there is no one answer for any company mm -hmm. uh, without some engagement to find out what they're trying to do, what's right. their experience, what's their market context, what's their resource base, what's their, their patience, um, mm -hmm. and lots of other factors that come into it. Mm -hmm. It's a very revealing discussion mm -hmm. because we're, there's no pressure from us. Mm -hmm. we're, not, we're trying to help them be more attractive to investors. We're not trying mm -hmm. to beat them down or to right. lower evaluation to get a better deal for an investor. Yeah. Yeah, I, I um, did some uh, events in New Zealand a few years ago, and we toured around with, with a bunch of investors and were meeting with, um, with companies that were looking for investment. And uh, I, did, I sat through 26 presentations in five days, uh, investor pitches. And it was amazing that um, many of them just don't get to the point. And it's, you know, you have an hour with each one. And if after 45 minutes they haven't <laughs> told you what it is they do, then there's a serious problem, you know? So, um, yeah, that was very re revealing. Um, it's from the, sitting on the investor's side of the table, it can be very frustrating that the, uh, the, the entrepreneurs don't have their pitch. They don't have their elevator pitch right. ready. And it's not, and then they have holes in the, in the business plan or strange ideas about setting up offshore companies and things like that that don't really fit with the typical venture business model. Um, 
But the other thing I learned was that a lot of these um, entrepreneurs in other countries like New Zealand, they have all sorts of benefits you don't get here in Silicon Valley. So for example, the government will match angel investments. Uh, so angels invest in the company, then the government will match, match funds. They think if they come to Silicon Valley, they have those types of benefits, but there's nothing like that. No, here. there's nothing like that. You are on your own, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's uh, a little bit like the Wild West out here. So, um, all right, so uh, you're a, a climber, and uh, <laughs> this, I've been talking about the startup process as a journey, and um, actually I'm amazed by uh, climbers, that's the, the ability to, to get through and up and over obstacles that just seem absolutely impossible. <laughs> um, it seemed that way to me most of the time, too. <laughs> no, fair enough, David. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm lucky to have been a, a climber for some 45 years without giving too much away. Um, it's the best sport out there, in my opinion, because it's the most democratic sport there ever was. Um, within certain bounds of fitness, uh, you don't have to be you know, an Olympic athlete to get up a rock. And just go out there and virtually any age. Like, mm -hmm. I, I was a mountain guide on and off about five years back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I had people starting in their 60s. And the, mo mm -hmm. the reaction was usually, man, I wish I'd started this earlier. Wow. Because it's, you've climbed to the level of your ability, and you, it's just you and the rock, gravity, maybe a rope above you and occasionally below you mm -hmm. when you get a little more advanced. And it, it teaches you all about yourself and your ability to solve problems, your willingness to fight through it. And uh, it's all about getting someplace you don't really belong, enjoy the view, get to the top, and mm -hmm. get home safe. Right. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I mean, there's a reason that, that climbing gyms have proliferated and there's lots of like corporate team building exercises mm -hmm. all about striving to solve problems and, mm -hmm. and get to the top. And it's, again, it's... Sure, there's plenty of competitive climbers, but to me, it's fundamentally not a competitive thing. It's you competing mm -hmm. with yourself mm -hmm. and your fitness and your, your tenacity to get up some piece of rock. Mm -hmm. And if you don't make it, not to be too discouraged. Uh, I've certainly been there. Mm -hmm. And the best part is to do it, you've got to travel. I've traveled all over the world to climb, mm -hmm. and it's been great. And I have friends all over the world mm -hmm. as a result of my climbing. And right. Some folks see it as you know, kind of like being a surf bum mm -hmm. or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, to each his own. But I do find that it's, you know, climbers have done good. Look at Patagonia, Yvonne Chouinard, right. what he did with Patagonia. Look at the current craze about, you know, Alex Honnold, free climbing, El, climbing El Cap without a rope. Right. You know, that's pretty, uh, pretty out there. No, <laughs> yeah. let, me, let me restate that. <laughs> we have no idea how far out there that is. In fact, I, someone saw yeah. that, if I can diverge for a moment here. Yeah. Um, I've seen the movie three times, and it won the Oscar, of course, for Best Documentary. Yeah. What I tell people is that it's, I'm hard-pressed to, to think of any human physical feat that would match it. Right. I don't know every physical feat that's ever been done, but I can't think of any yeah. other any activity, any other yeah. attempt that would be so unbelievably committing. Right. Because that thing is hard. And he was yeah. climbing for four hours straight, and it's yeah. 3,000 vertical feet, and it's overhanging at the top, and yeah. it's slick right. as glass. And he's yeah. up there. Now, granted, he practiced the route a few times, but believe me, I've, I've climbed enough rocks without a rope, easy routes, to know yeah. that, you know, it hurts whether you fall off an easy climb or a hard climb. Yeah. Uh, and it's all about keeping your head together. The beauty of climbing, right. it teaches you what really, really matters. Yeah. And I've been in plenty of situations where, okay, I need to figure this out. I don't have all day to do it. Yeah. So my strength is starting to fade or I'm, I'm 30 or 40 feet out and a fall. It could be a 100-foot fall onto maybe a really hard ledge. Yeah. So you really learn a lot about judging risk, uh, taking chances, knowing when to back off, mm -hmm. knowing when to go for it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get it wrong. I've, I'm lucky ne never to have been hurt. I have lost friends. I've seen some terrible injuries. 
Yeah. But then you see that in virtually any sport. Yeah. You see it on the street. So I think if anybody who's listening, if you've never tried rock climbing, go to a gym, sign up with someone who knows what they're doing. It's unlike anything else you've ever done. And then go outside because real climbing happens outdoors. What's, what's his mentality to, why, why, how does, because, you know, there's this theory about um, why entrepreneurs start businesses when there's nine out of 10 of them are gonna fail. And uh, one of the theories, which actually I, I like, is that they're kind of like fighter pilots. Um, they found that, that entrepreneurs know that nine out of 10 are gonna fail, but they think they have what it takes to be the one out of 10. So if there's, if there's 10, fighter pilots sitting around a table and you say to them, sorry guys, nine of you are going to die. Uh, they all look around at each other and they all think the same thing. They're all thinking, you poor guys, you're all going to die. And it's the entrepreneurs, they found, uh, there was a study, they found that um, entrepreneurs were the same. They were unusually confident in their own abilities. They thought they were the ones that had what it takes. So they know the odds, they have what it takes. And then, so the entrepreneurs don't really think they're taking that risk. And I know from the, from the investor's perspective, they mitigate risk by spreading the risk among different uh, portfolio of, com of companies. They have yep. a strategy yep. for spreading the risk and syndicating their investments. So they don't think they're taking those risks. I mean, I'm talking to the guy who has a master's degree in risk management here. <laughs> but um, um, I'm just thinking about the guy that's climbing up the mountain. I mean, obviously, he thinks he's mitigated his risk, right? I mean, because he's done it before. I mean, because he doesn't have any contingency plans. I mean, if something goes wrong, he's... There's no parachute. Right. So... There's no contingency plan. That's absolutely right. Well, right. it's... Okay. He's climbing well below his ability. Mm -hmm. Does it mean that a hold can't break or a bat can't fly out of the crack and hit you in the face and startle you? Absolutely. Mm. But I think it has to do with knowing how well you can perform under pressure, the ultimate pressure being life or death, mm -hmm. and to show yourself, because he doesn't do it for the publicity, of course, he's, he's world in the climbing community. Everybody knows him. Mm -hmm. uh, most folks shouldn't try that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I would say that, you know, if you go out and find a 30-degree slab of rock, you could run up in your sneakers and not think twice about it. Then you become a climber and you get really good. and You could climb a 70-degree slab with your, your gear without a rope because it's well within your ability. He's just mm -hmm. pushing that envelope farther than anybody's ever pushed it. Right. So there's plenty of folks. You mentioned the guy earlier, Dan Osman, who mm -hmm. unfortunately passed away. These guys go out there and do some pretty outrageous stuff. They're mm -hmm. pushing their own envelopes. And, yeah. you know, Alex is an extreme case of you know, right. the biggest wall, not the hardest route, but pretty hard. Um, <laughs> but he has the ability and, and the, he has the mental toughness. It's a lot. It's very physical, but it's really in the, in the brain, in right. the mind, this all happens. Yeah. So uh, to relate it to entrepreneurship, I think, sure, there's, you're taking risks where maybe the, the risk of failure is a little less dramatic. You're going to be miserable, but not dead. Right. Uh, but I think having even too much thought about it because there's such different disciplines, mm -hmm. but I think entrepreneurs who think they can succeed, it's, that's to be encouraged, that mm -hmm. they, they've gotten presumably well-educated, they've got a great idea, mm -hmm. they have somewhere developed the judgment to, to figure this is not as bad an idea as maybe my friends might say it is. Mm -hmm. I've been there a few times. Um, right. And enough people have tried the crazy ideas and, and made it stick that people want to try it again. Mm -hmm. I don't think most entrepreneurs do it for the money. The money's too far, you know, the big reward is too far away. Mm -hmm. And in your first time around, you've never had that kind of reward mm -hmm. unless you were born into money. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot of different motivations for it. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, it's one to prove yourself, show what you're good at, mm -hmm. show you can make something happen that others think is really unlikely. There's, mm -hmm. there's any number of, of 
cliches about, you know, the crazier people say you are, the better your idea must be. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Although you look at some of the things that people have accomplished that seem pretty unlikely. Mm -hmm. um, what we often say is to people who come here and want to find out what makes Silicon Valley what it is, we say, among other things, it's probably the one place in the world where, within broad boundaries, almost any, any idea is up for consideration. Mm -hmm. right? You look at what, uh, look what's happening to space travel. Look at SpaceX mm -hmm. and Blue Origin and things like that. Mm -hmm. If someone said, well, I, I want to turn NASA into a subcontractor, you know, NASA mm -hmm. went to the moon, and all of a sudden you've got the private sector launching and landing rockets repeatedly. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and it's done right. in a relatively short time yeah. with, you know, with lots yeah. of really talented people. Right. And so I think people come here and they realize that the reaction to a crazy idea in a lot of the world is, well, you know, that's crazy. Here it might mm -hmm. be, you hope it's going to be, well, maybe. I mean, if this mm -hmm. happened and that happened and this happened, you might just pull it off. You never know. Mm -hmm. And maybe someone will even take a chance on you. Right. So I think that's one of the main differentiators here mm -hmm. is that there's a willingness to at least yeah. consider taking a risk right. that in other parts of the world would be totally untenable. Yeah. And that's, that's a really important lesson because mm -hmm. if your gut reaction, whatever your gut reaction is, mm -hmm. let it rest for an hour and then go back to it. Mm -hmm. you know, have time to consider something. Uh, take a deep mm -hmm. breath and go back and say, well, mm -hmm. maybe that's not such a crazy idea. And mm -hmm. there's, there's plenty of stories in both directions. People who stuck with something through, like the, like Pandora, there's a great story of the unbelievable tenacity to, to finally raise mo enough money mm -hmm. uh, and the, the sheer force of will that the CEO had to exert to keep everybody motivated moving mm -hmm. forward. Yeah. And then Spotify comes along. <laughs> right. So, yeah. and there's stories where people have tried things too early. There's a great book um, about the Apple Newton. Oh, yeah. From the early mm -hmm. 90s, like 1994. Yep. Um, and you look at what, what they were trying to do back then. Didn't work. Apple, of course, Apple then was not what it is today. Right. right? But still, the vision was there, and, mm -hmm. and they tried to make it work, and it kind of, seems kind of comical up on stage. Like, yeah. like any live demo, it's probably going to go wrong. Yeah. And, and maybe badly, embarrassingly so. But I right. think it's, it's the willingness to go back and try it again after that. That's right. sort of never say die thing. I saw a thing yeah. about Thomas Edison the other day. And he said, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I've simply found 10,000 things that don't work. Right. So he's learned a hell of a lot. Yeah. Like we say, as long as you learn something, it's not an, an abject failure. Right. And I, I often say to people, somewhat inelegantly, the only true failure in adventure is a failure to learn from a failure. Right. But it's true. Yeah. Everything should be a learning experience, yeah. whether you want it or not. Right. It's, right. it's right. the wise who take it yeah. in stride and say, okay, I won't make yeah. that mistake again. Yeah. I think that one of the key things is that you do your learning when it's as safe as possible. So you don't go climbing up El Cap, you know, without a rope first time around. You know, you spend years and years and years. That would be pretty um, bold. <laughs> Although um, you look at what's changed, you know, but standards evolve and, you know, the risks people take. Because they get so good at the discipline, they can mm -hmm. push the envelope. Right. Like Alex Honnold does. Yeah. And, and others can you know, learn by example. I mm -hmm. do not recommend climbing a rock without a rope. Right. I only recommend climbing with a rope with someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. And there's lots of good schools out there. There's no excuse for getting hurt rock climbing nowadays. Right. Uh, and frankly, given the number of people who go from the gym to the real world with no real understanding of the difference between the two, mm -hmm. I'm kind of amazed there aren't more accidents than there are. Mm -hmm. I follow it fairly closely. Right. But, but it just goes to show that you, there's a vast body of knowledge you can pick up, yeah. whether you're taking up rock climbing or you're becoming mm -hmm. an entrepreneur. I mean, yeah. there's no shortage of yeah, books yeah. on every conceivable topic. Right. Uh, and it's worth reading some of those. And yeah, at least yeah. true yeah. entrepreneurs may be born, not, not bred, mm -hmm. but, but you can learn a hell of a lot. And I suggest you do. 
Yeah. At least about the topic. You need to learn how to play the game, or how, or how to how climb, you know, how things work. To um, have proper expectations. Yeah. And not to look to others like you don't know what you're talking about. Right, right. Looking dumb. No one likes to look dumb. Right. When, <clears throat> what we often say is there are no dumb questions. As long as you're listening, to, as long, it may be a simple question, it may be an obvious thing, at yeah. least to us. Um, yeah. But if it's not to somebody else, then it's a good question. But as long as you're paying attention to the answer. Yeah. If you're not yeah. paying attention to the answer, then you haven't asked a smart question. Yeah. Because you haven't learned it. Right, right, right. I mean, one thing, when um, sitting in on these uh, investment pitches uh, that entrepreneurs make to investors, um, it's interesting that some of them have done their homework and they know the game. And they're much more impressive and they're much more acceptable to the, to the investors. Some of them that come in and they just don't know how this works. They, they try and ask, for example, they might ask the investor to sign an, an NDA uh, be, at the beginning of their meeting. And they, they may say, we can't sign Probably it. Probably not going to You know? Right. So things like that. Are oh, you giving away the fact that you don't really know the game? You don't know how this works. Right. So people need to, they never, like in everything, do their homework. You might homework. look dumb without right. meaning to right. or necessarily having to. Right. So uh, your um, program for uh, angels, mm -hmm. that's interesting. I, I, know, I know, well, my experience in dealing with the venture capital investors is that they all basically work in the same way. They all want to buy uh, shares with preferred stock. Sure. And they, get, they know what their preferences they want. They want the company formed as a Delaware corporation. And they um, have their, their, their preferred stock preferences all lined up. Angels have got a little bit more. Angels used to do convertible notes. Um, that would convert over to preferred well, they, stock, but still the dominant kind of, form around here. Okay, but then they got more flexible and they do all the sorts of different things. So, and, and I know you've been helping some angels get into the into the investing mm -hmm. business, and it'd be interesting to get your insights into where they're coming from, what they're looking for, what they need to know. Um, what do you What do you teach them? Boy, again, it's probably the most common thing I say in my class. There's no one size fits all for anything, investor, entrepreneur, or anybody else for that matter. Um, with, if somebody has the, the desire to be an angel investor, that right there is a huge leap. Because what do most people nowadays, at least in the US, what's their exposure to angel investing? I'd say Shark Tank is the closest anybody's really gonna get. Yeah. It's not really been called angel investing. And mm -hmm. if it is, these guys are super angels because they're all very wealthy and mm -hmm. they're all stars. And mm -hmm. my fear is that even though they publicize this idea of investing in early stage companies with these very earnest entrepreneurs pitching their thing, sometimes crazy, sometimes sensible, sometimes with traction, sometimes without a clue. People watch this and say, well, that's cool. I wouldn't mind being a part of some company like that, but I'm not a billionaire. Mm -hmm. I don't have any vast distribution networks in my current businesses. Mm -hmm. I have nothing, a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. So what we try to encourage is anybody who's willing to risk, say, $10,000, because we try to aggregate up to 20 people, 25 people in a pool, mm -hmm. which will make a meaningful pot of money, $40 mm -hmm. million dollars or so. Mm -hmm. If they're willing to put that money on the table mm -hmm. and to spend a bit of time learning, because angel investing, like anything else, is a, is a skill. You can learn it. There's a ton of information out there about how to do it properly. That doing that will make you, will put you in the top 5% skills-wise of angel investors. There are lots of great angels out there. Most of them learn by doing. Mm -hmm. You know, The notion of accredited investor status, in my mind, is not terribly legitimate. Because mm -hmm. in my mind, and from a lot of direct personal experience, the correlation between a net worth figure and your ability to critique the chances of an early stage company's success, I'd say it's pretty close to zero. Mm -hmm. There's no reason it should be otherwise. Mm -hmm. It's not so much a criticism as to say you've drawn a false false correlation there. Mm -hmm. You know, If you want to be able to assess 
the uh, chances of an early stage venture, know what to look for. Mm -hmm. Take a look at the 50 most important things to find out about. You know, mm -hmm. not just is the, does the team have the right requisite education? Does the team get along? Are they good at, at resolving conflict? Do they have they have they solidified their partnership and proper contracts? Are there escape clauses? Are there mm -hmm. you know, remediation in case of ir ir irreconcilable differences in where the company's headed? You know, mm -hmm. and these are things that you need to know to ask for. You need to be know as an entrepreneur to create. You need to know as as an angel to ask for and to look at and to examine, mm -hmm. and maybe not critique yourself, but send to your lawyer and have him look at it or her look at it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's there's so much to know that mm -hmm. to me it's inconceivable somebody would risk a meaningful sum of money, which ten thousand certainly is, mm -hmm. without some background in how these how this processes work. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just you can go to the horse track and probably get the same chances of a positive outcome. Yeah, the the whole accredited investor thing came about. Um, you know, we, we have a securities regulation course, IPO course on, on the business school, and it talks about the stock market crash and how it hurt sure. small investors. And then the SEC came in and they set rules and said that sure. you can only invest in these startup companies if you're, unless you're an insider, right. one of the founders or something, you can only invest if you're an accredited investor. Sure. And that means they think you're, that means you're sophisticated in the minds of the SEC enough to make decisions that, that uh, makes sense. So to be a, and you can sustain and, the loss better by, right. by being less financially impacted by losing it all. Right. And then I think the last time I looked, it was $250,000 income per year um, to so be two an Two or three hundred a net worth of a million, yeah. net, a million without your primary residence. Right, right, right. But even those, I mean, I, I got asked by an angel investor who was more than $50 million to look at some of the companies he invested in. And I mean, I, the first one I looked at, I just had to say, there is nothing there. What were you thinking? You know, <laughs> and I had to go have lunch with this guy, and he said, "So, you know, what? What do you think?" And I was like, "There's nothing. They have nothing at all." So they um, just because they made a lot of money doesn't mean they can pick the best yeah, investment. It comes back to the sophistication thing. Right. Sophistication to me is the wrong way to put it. So, what do you actually know mm -hmm. about how to critique an early stage company mm -hmm. and its chances in the markets it's in, mm -hmm. and without having had some exposure to the actual activity run mm -hmm. by doing, or by speaking to a lot of experienced investors and entrepreneurs and, mm -hmm. and managers and operations types, you mm -hmm. simply can't know. So the government mm -hmm. was doing what governments do, which is mm -hmm. trying to protect its citizens through regulation. Mm -hmm. And I think they probably had the right line of reasoning. They mm -hmm. just had all the wrong assumptions. Mm -hmm. right? The right assumption is that no matter how much money you have, earned, or born into, found, won in the lottery, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. That number is, is independent of, in general, of your ability mm -hmm. to critique an early stage venture. Right. It really comes down to that. Now, the yeah. Jobs Act changed all that and all the uh, crowdfunding, mm -hmm. crowdsourcing. That's, that's yeah. all good. I mean, that's also plenty of room to go wrong there. Mm -hmm. But I think we've seen enough and we have enough mm -hmm. experience with people who've, who've taken a more serious approach to it mm -hmm. to know that it works really well. Mm -hmm. David, it's hard in the U.S. Anybody with a, a fairly high net worth is not going to think they need much training mm -hmm. in something like this. Fair enough. Yeah. So we don't try to convince them. Um, I've got some very active conversations, mostly in Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. because they have the right combination of a lot of talent. Everyone speaks English for the most part, mm -hmm. English, English well enough. Mm -hmm. Plenty of resource there, as yet unmobilized mm -hmm. in support of early stage companies. Mm -hmm. And perhaps most importantly, there's a strong desire uh, in those regions to be more impactful players in the tech ecosystems. Mm -hmm. They all. I met them all here. 
Oh, right. They all Met came them all. here. They all came here. Right. And what I say is, you can do this at home. Don't, don't come here today. Mm-hmm. You can yeah. just do this at home first, build up a, a history and a foundation there, then come over here. Yeah. And people are going to respond pretty positively to that. So, right. so I think in the U.S. Now, you could. Now, we don't try to do it in San Francisco. You don't need it here. Mm-hmm. But go to Boise, Idaho. Go to Kansas City. Go to mm-hmm. Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You know, places like that. Lots of smart people. Lots of tech talent. Big universities cranking out PhDs and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, you know, ex- capital markets already mm-hmm. existing. Probably mm-hmm. not as active as here. Mm-hmm. But I've met people from universities and small towns in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I haven't judged their, I haven't taken too close a look at their startups, but they sound interesting. Mm-hmm. And they're passionate about it, and they got a lot sunk into it. So right. it's a bit like Steve Case and his uh, Rise mm-hmm. of the Rest. You know about that? No. It's interesting. He's got a bus that he drives. He's been to. There was a special on just the other day. I read about him last year. That they are trying to highlight. <clears throat> it's a it's a great ambition to highlight the um, opportunities in the lesser traveled parts of the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, middle of nowhere. There mm-hmm. are some field in Kansas with a guy who's up a drone for crop surveillance, surveillance or something or other. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely right. My fear is that that's too much of a of a, of a fly-in photo op. One company gets a hundred thousand. They have a pitch contest. One company wins a hundred thousand dollars, and everybody else, you know, had a good time. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I mean, it's it's a sets a good example. It highlights the fact there are investable mm-hmm. technologies in less mm-hmm. traditional investment areas of mm-hmm. the country, but it doesn't do much to create that local investment. There's no investment function mm-hmm. put in place there. Right. And so, if the bus doesn't come to your town, what kind of outcome can you expect? You watch other people get. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, mm-hmm. There are not enough Steve cases to go around to, to hit every region where there's promising opportunity. Mm-hmm. So we try to change some of the thinking around that as well. Mm-hmm. So, but it, yeah. it's a slog. First to admit that yeah. Americans are not real big on education as as adults for things like this. So right. we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. We we think it's a really good idea. I've done enough. I did I did a one day seminar over in uh, Sweden last year, and it was great. I mean, mm-hmm. I had family offices in the room, mm-hmm. a couple of venture firms. Mm-hmm. And my question to them was, why are you here? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, we, we learn by doing. We're curious to hear what yeah. those experiences like as well. It was a yeah. great day. Really, really Oh, yeah, enjoyable. I had the same. I, I did a bunch of uh, seminars on entrepreneurship and IP and went to various diff- parts of the world, um, Hong Kong, New Zealand, um, Spain, Canada. And the interesting thing was that um, there were a lot of investors that came along. Uh, particularly the one in Hong, in um, New Zealand, um, the head of the um, New Zealand Angel Investment Group told all the angels to come along, and they were they were they were fascinated. So um, that was that was interesting. And the other thing that I I found interesting was the um, the similarities of the way the systems work. I mean, each country is has its own version of the SEC. Mm-hmm. They have their own rules about investing in startups, and uh, they and also, but they're all very similar to the U.S. They're all virtually the same, and um, the the way that the venture capital funds operate, the way they structure their deals, they just copied and pasted it from Silicon Valley anyway. So it was all very similar. There are these where these tech hubs are, where all these venture investors and things are. They're all operating like mini Silicon Valleys, and so. The same principles apply in different countries. Mm-hmm. But if you go out, I mean, I, I interviewed a, a guy that came from uh, the Midwest, some small town. He had a little uh, small town lawyer there. He had a nice startup company, came to Silicon Valley, raised funding in Silicon Valley, and uh, 
then he found that the, the, um, the preferred stock had a liquidation preference of 11x. So the normal is, norm is about 1.5 or 2. So they're 11x. So 11 times the, the amount the investors put in, they take out before the entrepreneurs earn anything else. But that's because they just didn't have sophisticated uh, lawyers right. that are coming from. Uh, so, um, well, um, just wrapping up, what would you say were the top, what top things you think you would advise entrepreneurs to avoid and what would be your top tips for entrepreneurs, things they should do? Okay. Well, I think it's, <clears throat> it's hard to be too well-read or too up to speed on what goes on around you in your particular industry. If you're an entrepreneur, I think you are duty-bound to have as, as up-to-date uh, an awareness of what goes on in the space around you as you can possibly get. There's a ton of information out there. It used to be just you know, the occasional trade mag or Wired magazine or something. But now between old media and new media and, and blogs and, um, and all the specialized, specialized coverage of things and all the different deal tracking um, mechanisms that are out there and all the information on, on M&A in your space, if you're not up to, at least roughly up to date on those things, I don't think you're a good investor. That means mm -hmm. you're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. you're, you're too inward looking because mm -hmm. no startup can afford not to know what goes on with its biggest competitors. And you look at the, the acquisitive or the, the, um, let's say the investment nature of some of these big companies. Like if you're, a, if you're a company, you've got competitors around you that you're aware of them, and all of a sudden one of them gets an investment by a Google or an Amazon. They might still be the same size company in the same building as they were yesterday, but they are no longer the same competitor, presumably, mm -hmm. that they were yesterday. If you don't mm -hmm. know that, you're going to get blindsided. And the last thing an investor wants is to be surprised by one of his investments getting blindsided, mm -hmm. or however that happens. Right. So we see that a lot. Yeah. I always, in my class, I always ask the question, who here considers themselves really well-read in their space? Mm -hmm. I almost never get hands on it. I said, who here reads at least one publication a week in their space? About half the hands go up. Mm -hmm. So how about every day? Mm -hmm. Almost no hands ever go up. Mm -hmm. And that's too bad, because there's so much out there. It's, it's hard to keep track of all of it. Yeah. But find the ones that work for you. and Mm -hmm. you know, the hyperlink has changed the way you access information nowadays. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to follow links down a rabbit hole on occasion mm -hmm. and use your judgment to decide when you've had enough or yeah. that what you're reading is makes sense for you and what doesn't make sense for you. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be too well read. You, and you've got to be conversant mm -hmm. on anything that's happened in the last month in your space. Because yeah. if, if an investor knows about it and you don't, there's mm -hmm. a flaw right there. Yeah. And he or she will walk away. Right, that's a good point. So that's yeah. one thing. Um, another thing is... Uh, don't be afraid to think outside your original box. Mm -hmm. You know, I get a lot of companies that have a very specific vision and they say, we were told to be specific and laser focused and we are laser focused. Mm -hmm. I said, fair enough. That's advice you get a lot. I'm not saying it's not right, but sometimes the, you, know, you can have a, a long lens or a short lens and you can't only focus on something small at the expense of something larger. So you've got to have the judgment and the awareness to see when maybe you're too focused or you're looking away from a mm -hmm. bigger opportunity. I get this a lot with people who have technologies that might be considered more of a platform approach than an application or a product mm -hmm. approach yeah. because developing a platform mm -hmm. can be a good way to go because you then are able to, to provide something to every player in your space as opposed to just selling your own product, competing with others who make a similar sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it doesn't happen all that often, but if you have something that could be more of a platform approach that others can use, I think it's worth going after. So don't be afraid mm -hmm. to think outside your own box. Mm -hmm. It's like companies that hire the, so the black hat guys who try to hack into their systems mm -hmm. as to check for vulnerabilities. Right. That's a really good, yeah. if I had any skills whatsoever in the hacking world, I would do that. Because yeah. it's, 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 I think it's very foresightful of the companies 
to right. do that, to subject themselves to an attack by yeah. experienced hackers to see yeah. how vulnerable they really are. Right. And uh, I think you need to do the same thing to yourself. Stress mm -hmm. test your own assumptions right. and your own path forward. Because mm -hmm. if you don't, if you're challenged to think a, a little more broadly by someone who might be considering an investment or mm -hmm. some kind of commercial relationship, mm -hmm. if you don't have an answer, uh, you're, caught, you're caught out. Mm -hmm. And that might be seen as a flaw that's going to make you less attractive. Right. So thinking outside the box and bringing outside counsel. Yeah. You know, I'm a big one for traditional business practice. Like in my class when I ask who here has a board of directors, mm -hmm. how often do you think hands go up? Not very often. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, you know, when you incorporated your company, assuming you've incorporated, you know, there's always some lines there for a, a board, mm -hmm. like chairman, treasurer, secretary. Mm -hmm. And you can put your name in there, same name in all three is no problem. Have a yeah. meeting with yourself, mm -hmm. whatever you want to do. But if you don't have it, have a good reason why you don't have it. You're mm -hmm. planning on it. You, you don't have time to focus on it. Mm -hmm. Couldn't find somebody you liked as a member. That's absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. But have something to say. Too often, people just don't have a reason why they haven't followed the normal structures mm -hmm. of building a business. Yeah. If you don't at least have a reason why you didn't do it, mm -hmm. then I think that's a flaw. Another right. one, I wanted to mention this earlier, is that an awful lot of startups come in with a really fatal flaw. If I had to pick one most important thing, I'd say in your pitch deck, your use of proceeds is, should be a, you know, a really standout slide. And the reason I say that is because if you think about it, you know, David, let's say I'm an entrepreneur, you're an investor, and I come to you and say, David, I've got this awesome idea. I've, put it, I've mocked something up here. I've modeled it out, and uh, I, I know I can do this. I need, I need a quarter million of your dollars to do this, and I'd like you to, to give me that money in some form or other. And you say, okay, have you ever built a business like this before? The answer is probably no. Mm -hmm. you, know, I say, you can't see the future. So on what basis should I, David, consider you to be anywhere near worthy of taking my money? Show me how you're going to spend your money. If I can't produce a spreadsheet or some kind of document that highlights in great detail mm -hmm. how I'm going to spend every one of those $250,000 mm -hmm. over what period of time, to what endpoint, mm -hmm. through what milestones, mm -hmm. if I can't show you that, mm -hmm. then... Then I have a little too much chutzpah for this conversation. Right. The nerve I have to ask you for your money mm -hmm. to do something I've never done. If I can't explain to you exactly what I'm going to do with it, mm -hmm. I have no business being there. And you, you'd be right. like, you're out of your mind. I'm not yeah. giving you a nickel. <laughs> because don't forget, every startup is risky to an investor. Mm -hmm. It's your job as an entrepreneur is to appear to be the least risky place for mm -hmm. an investor to put his or her money. If you right. can't do that, then you have no business being on stage or competing, however you're competing for this money. Mm -hmm. And I think the use of proceeds, which should mm -hmm. be a detailed description of what exactly yeah. you're going to do with each dollar, right. if you can't produce at least that, you are yeah. not a good investment. Yeah. And, it is, and what are most use of proceeds slides look like? Pie chart, 30% here and 40% there, 20% there. And right. What's that up to? 90. And you get 10% miscellaneous. Right. That shows me that you, as an entrepreneur, have not spent a great deal of time mm -hmm. thinking hard about how you're going to spend my hard-earned money. Right. Therefore, you're not getting a nickel of it. And right. one other thing to keep in mind, whose money, when someone makes an investment, mm -hmm. whose money is it? Mm -hmm. you know? But that, that use of proceeds also makes you ask those difficult questions and really understand the business, right? If you can nail down exactly where, where each dollar is going, you've already figured out most of the business strategy. Right. Solve the problems. Right. And you know it's not going to be exactly like that. But mm -hmm. at least you've taken the time to consider mm -hmm. everything you need to do and what you think it's going to cost time, money, resource-wise right. to do it. The example I often use is that uh, a, a good pitch deck should stand on its own. Mm -hmm. That you could stand there and just flip through the slides and not say a word. And by the time you get to slide 10 or 12, 
the audience has some idea what you're up to. A better use of it would be you know, you're on your way to, a, let's say you've got a, a, big, a big meeting with an investor and you're on the train and, and you're nervous and someone jostles you and your presentation, which you've printed out and bound nicely, it falls out and it falls under the seat in front of you and you don't notice it. And you get off the train, you're like, oh my God, where's my presentation? So the next guy gets on the train and it's you, David. You get on the train, you pick this document up from under the seat in front of you. Like, What's this? Mm-hmm. No, it's a pitch deck. Mm-hmm. And you flip through it. You get to the end of that thing and you say, you know what? I'm not quite sure what this is, but I want to know more. I can see from the 10 or 12 different slides here, this person or these people have really thought through all the different aspects. The use of proceeds looks good. The, their HR practices, their IP practices, their bookkeeping and, and cash management practices, they all look pretty solid. Mm-hmm. This is someone I'd like to know more about. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready to invest. I don't even know their name. But from what I've seen in this document, it's clear they've given the, the requisite thought to each of these important categories. That's, that's what a good pitch deck should be. Mm-hmm. It should be independent of you. Yeah. So, so I would yeah. say to people, uh, make a good deck. There's, right. a, there's a novel piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not that easy because it's it, not that's easy the final. I know. I, I, I was just dealing with a company hard, that was, they had a target to finish their pitch deck by the end of a certain month. And they're frustrated as hell that they can't get it done. And there's, they're now two months late. Yep. But it's hard. It's hard to get all those answers and get everything, the whole business plan. If you, yeah, it takes a lot of research and time. It really does. And, uh, and review and revision and outside right. consultation. And don't be afraid to get up there and, 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 and not make a fool of yourself, but, mm-hmm. but not make the impression you want. You, you learn more from a disaster than from a outright right. success. And right. I think it's so hard to do these things right, but it's really mm-hmm. worth it because mm-hmm. once somebody can appreciate how hard you've worked to get good at at each category and the, and the mm-hmm. big picture stuff as well, yeah. then you're going to be a much more solid mm-hmm. performer in front of these people. And right. let's face it, you're up there, you're selling yourself. It's kind of like performance art. You've got an mm-hmm. idea, you've got an execution plan. Are they willing to fund it? Right. It's pretty fundamental. Yeah, yeah. So, Well, thanks very much, Paul. Oh, thank it's you. It's been fabulous. And thanks for everything you're doing here with helping these entrepreneurs. Um, so I've seen someone's just opened a, a drawer there um, an office drawer and it's full of bottles of wine so obviously you have you have fun here in the vault <laughs> we do what we can we used to have... you found our secret stash it's covered by those those manila folders that's right. know that. right um well let me yeah. just give one last plug for the vault sure which is that um we encourage anybody who comes to san francisco whether you're coming from from san mateo or sao paulo is to come here and meet the people and see what we do and have a chat we'll see what you're up to and if we can help you out We'd love a chance to do so. All right. And I'll, um, I'll put your information on the website, Please. on the Silicon Valley Trains website, and we'll have a link to you, and maybe you'll be uh, helping us with Silicon Valley Business School as well. That'd be great. All right. All right, David. Okay. Thank Thanks, you. Paul. You'll find The Vault at thevault.co, T-H-E-V-A-U-L-T.co. And if you'd like to have Paul help you with your startup, you can join his Silicon Valley Business School chat room where Paul can offer custom advice and answer your questions. Just visit svbs.co and you can sign up for my chat room as well as Paul's from there. Hope you'll join us for future podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe so you get new episodes as and when they're released. And please rate us in your podcast player as this will help us get the word out to entrepreneurs and the other people we're trying to help with this podcast series. That's it for today. Hope you tune in to the next Silicon Valley Trends, the podcast for innovators and entrepreneurs.